Welcome to the Right Take Podcast, news, ideas, and conversations at the intersection of politics and culture, a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. I will be your host, Mark Tapson. Welcome back to the Right Take Podcast. I am your host, Mark Tapson. Thanks once again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. I hope you like what you're hearing here at the Right Take and finding the conversations that we're having here to be both entertaining and enlightening. If so, take a moment to subscribe to The Right Take if you haven't already, and please leave a positive review if you like what you hear. It helps with those all-important algorithms and is very much appreciated. Today, because we just passed Columbus Day, oh, forgive me, I mean Indigenous Peoples Day, I wouldn't want to offend anyone by using the old unwoke designation for the holiday, Anyway, I had planned to do an episode in which I addressed what was, what has become a controversial topic in recent years, and that is Christopher Columbus and the scourge of colonialism. In fact, I'm still going to do that. But first, I feel compelled to address the topic that is dominating the news, in which I can't allow to go unremarked upon, and that is, of course, the terror attacks against Israel that took place over the last weekend and which, to a certain extent, are still ongoing. And actually, in one sense, that topic does tie in with the idea of colonialism, because Israel is often accused by its enemies of being a colonialist power and oppressing the so-called Palestinian people under its boot heel. This is a malicious smear, actually, against the only democracy in the Middle East. And in fact, there is no such thing as the quote-unquote Palestinian people. But that's a topic I won't get into here today. The point today is that the so-called resistance against this purported Israeli oppression is viewed by many to be an anti-colonialist movement, and the proponents of identity politics claim solidarity with that resistance as part of their goal of the violent overthrow of what they perceive to be colonialist powers, in other words, America and the rest of the Western world. All of that is too big a topic for me to try to unravel and unpack in just a few minutes of an introduction here, and I want to move on in a moment to my original topic of Columbus Day and colonialism, but it's important that I first make a statement about the atrocities carried out by the Muslim terror group Hamas, with the backing of the fundamentalist regime of Iran, to whom the Biden administration just recently released billions of dollars. By now, I'm sure you've all read or heard about the unthinkable crimes against humanity perpetrated against innocent Jewish men, women, and children, about the slaughter of over a thousand people, the wounding of thousands more, and the abduction of somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple of hundred people whose fates will almost certainly be the stuff of nightmares. And not just the slaughter, but rapes, torture, and even the defilement of corpses, the behavior of these terrorist monsters has rightly been called by my friend the historian Victor Davis Hanson pre-civilizational. In other words, it's a kind of frenzied bloodlust that civilized people simply cannot fathom. But we're not talking about civilized people. The anti-Semitic left-wing supporters of Hamas all over the Western world, from London to Sydney to New York and L.A., have proudly expressed their full-throated support of the sickening atrocities carried out against Israeli innocents, claiming that the so-called Palestinian people are so oppressed and desperate that they have no other means of surviving their purported genocide at the hands of the Israelis than to behead Jewish babies 
torture Jewish women and videotape themselves spitting on their victims' corpses. They're so desperate to survive, apparently, that they have no other option but to use their victims' cell phones to call up the victims' relatives and taunt them. Those are not desperate acts of resistance against tyranny. That is tyranny and evil. Let me make something perfectly clear. If you are part of a heavily armed marauding gang massacring unarmed young people at a music festival, dragging families out of their homes and murdering them, and kidnapping innocents to perpetrate further atrocities, including murder broadcast live on the Internet, then you don't get to label yourself a freedom fighter. You're not a freedom fighter. You're not even a fighter. You're an evil coward. And you've demonstrated that you have abrogated your right to live among civilized people. And you deserve every bit of the retribution that's coming, whether in this life or the next. And if you support this evil in any way, shape, or form from the comfort of the civilized, prosperous world you are privileged to live in, then may God have mercy on your soul as well. You're not a revolutionary. You're not a freedom fighter. You're just part of a mindless, hate-filled mob. And the only good thing about this is that you have shown us who you are. And now the lines are clearly drawn. Whatever happens next, however this escalates, and it will, it's clear that what we're facing is a war between civilization and barbarism, between good and evil, between light and dark, and there's no room for neutrality, nuance, or negotiation. All right, thanks for letting me get that off my chest, and I hope it makes it clear where I stand and whom I stand with. I'll be writing and probably speaking more about that as time goes on, but now let me bring things back to the Columbus Day that we just passed, because I don't want to miss the timeliness of this opportunity to deliver some truth bombs about the much maligned explorer Columbus and the myths about European colonialism to which far too many people subscribe. In that respect, I want to talk about a brand new book, which I recently reviewed at frontpagemag.com and whose author I recently interviewed on this very podcast. The book is called Not Stolen, The Truth About European Colonialism in the New World. And its author is Dr. Jeff Finn Paul. That's F-Y-N-N hyphen P-A-U-L. Finn Paul. He's a professor of economics and global history at Leiden University, the oldest university in the Netherlands, and one of the top research institutions in Europe. He's the author of dozens of scholarly articles and books. He's written an absolutely essential book addressing many of the issues central to our warped understanding of the history of colonialism in the New World. The book's 20 chapters are all framed as questions, such as, did Europeans commit genocide in the New World? Did the founders steal democracy from a Native Americans? Were Native Americans naturally peaceful and benevolent? Did Europeans starve, massacre, or spread disease among the natives? Are natives owed reparations? And more, questions about which Professor Finn Paul proceeds to enlighten us. To drill down more specifically into the topic of Columbus Day, the book includes a chapter titled Intrepid Explorer or Genocidal Maniac, The Complex Case of Christopher Columbus. And with the author's permission, I'm literally going to read selected passages from that chapter that I believe everyone, no matter where you stand on the issue of Columbus and colonialism, will find interesting and enlightening, because this is a deeply researched book by an author who explicitly states that his intention in writing the book 
was not to be a cheerleader for Western civilization or to whitewash very real atrocities that actually happened in the New World, but simply to present the balanced objective truth about this uh, very contentious issue. So let me proceed to read some selections, and keep in mind that I'm skipping ahead at some points, um, so if it seems slightly disjointed here and there, I'm to blame for that. Here we go. Most societies paint a flattering portrait of their past and tend to justify or airbrush their crimes. Historical revisionism is therefore often a necessary corrective. But it is also possible to go too far in the other direction. Thus, the idea of Christopher Columbus as the carrier of a peculiar European depravity founded on hierarchy, oppression, patriarchy, racism, capitalist exploitation, and a delight in cruelty and torture— has become mainstream in the historical profession and by osmosis among the public at large. The image of Renaissance Europe as a place of absolutist hierarchy and oppression began with certain radical historians in the 1970s and has mushroomed in recent decades until it has become the mainstream interpretation of European culture. Columbus himself has emerged as a symbol of this cultural invasion, the most destructive force ever to propagate itself across the planet. In this view, Columbus embodies the European penchant for killing and enslaving non-white peoples wherever they are found. Throw in the notion that he was also the founder of modern capitalism, the first imperialist, the first colonizer, the bringer of patriarchy to the New World, and the instigator of mass environmental destruction— and Columbus becomes a nearly perfect embodiment of everything hated by the left today. On the surface, this vision of Columbus seems consistent with what most people think they know about New World history. Europeans created colonies that stole Indian land and pushed the native peoples nearly to extinction. They were racists who engaged in slavery on a massive scale. They set up exploitative proto-capitalist trading systems were rapacious and careless exploiters of natural resources, and imported alien technologies that lie at the root of modern environmental disaster. But it is one thing to recognize that the interlopers who followed Columbus caused a great deal of suffering, and quite another to suggest that they were a vanguard of a uniquely evil European system of oppression that has lasted from that day to this, a system that Moreover, remains the root of most suffering endured by minorities and women today. According to this view, if only indigenous institutions and mentalities had triumphed over European ones, rather than the other way around, the world today would be a veritable utopia, where all races and genders live in harmony with nature and one another. Because that, in their idealized view, is what New World society was like before Columbus arrived. In this view, the wellspring of Western civilization is the oppression of natives. A more radical statement could hardly be made, and yet this is now what passes for mainstream historical opinion. Notice how this view of history is carefully crafted to lump together the hot-button issues of the modern left. Classical Marxism did not give a fig about racism, or gender issues, or environmentalism. But as communism imploded after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989, leftists broadened their definitions of oppression in a deliberate move to broaden their appeal to these minority and activist groups. The resulting worldwide view, sorry, the resulting worldview is so rabidly anti-white, anti-male, and anti-European 
that it challenges the idea of human progress itself. How do we untangle the truth about Columbus in the face of so much vitriol? Renaissance Europe was no more hierarchical, patriarchal, or oppressive than any other major civilization. In fact, it was a good deal less so. In Columbus's day, European society was a chaotic patchwork of jurisdictions and political systems. This included dozens of the world's only functioning small-scale republics. Many scholars have credited this political fragmentation with creating a fertile ground for entrepreneurialism, a crucible of clashing institutions that eventually gave birth to modern capitalism. It was into this world of chaos and opportunity that Christopher Columbus was born, and he took full advantage of it. His father wanted him to become a cloth weaver like himself, but young Cristoforo abandoned the workshop in favor of an adventurous life at sea. The, uh, then the writer goes on to say, The question of just how religious Columbus really was has exercised scholars throughout the modern era. On the one hand, he was eminently practical, a crass businessman and self-promoter who recognized that the use of religious rhetoric would have a positive effect on the pious Queen Isabella of Spain. On the other hand, he himself became increasingly religious as he got older, though this was tinged with a sense of himself as an agent of providence who united previously disparate people around the world. In his journal, Columbus advocated restraint when it came to introducing the Indians to Christianity, writing that they were a people who could be more easily freed and converted to our holy faith by love than by force. Even in late medieval Spain, voluntary conversion was usually preferred. While academics tend to think of Christian missionaries as agents of repression, the fact is Christianity has caused countless individuals to dedicate their lives to bettering the lot of native groups in the New World, from Columbus's day through the present. Columbus and many others believed that if shown good treatment, the Indians would accept Christianity in due time. Throughout his subsequent governorship of the Caribbean, despite his numerous incompetencies and misdeeds, Columbus was never a consistent advocate for forced conversion any more than Queen Isabella herself was. In order to exploit the connections he created with the New World, the entrepreneurial Columbus proposed the creation of a series of trading posts in the Caribbean. The idea was to trade with natives for their most valuable products using a string of permanent coastal forts as bases for trade. This was hardly a novel idea. Columbus simply embraced the trading fort model that the Italians had been using in the Black Sea for centuries. This trading fort model had recently been exported to the west coast of Africa with great success. Many people fought Columbus for setting up these trading forts, as if he should have known that this too would soon prove devastating to the New World civilization. But in the Black Sea in West Africa and in the Portuguese Indian Ocean Empire, these trading forts had only a very limited effect on local peoples. In all these places, Europeans were confined to their coastal enclaves by local rulers for many centuries. And the major effect of the European presence was to enrich both Europeans and locals via the creation of new trading networks. Given European experience throughout the Old World, in which indigenous populations continued to thrive after contact with Europeans, neither Columbus nor anyone else could have foreseen the collapse in New World population levels that would result from European presence in the Caribbean. The Spanish monarchs recognized that Columbus was an opportunist and prone to hyperbole, but they nonetheless granted him the, the title Admiral of the Ocean Sea as the promised reward for his exploits. 
Enticed by the potential of this new world and the prospect of opening a direct trade route to China, they sent him out in 1493 with a much larger fleet of 17 ships. Desperate to prove that the new world could be profitable for Spain, Columbus allowed his men to enslave some of the rebellious Indians on Hispaniola and sell them in the Seville slave market. He accordingly sent several hundred of these back to Spain, though nearly half of them died along with their European captors when their ship was lost in an Atlantic storm. This single incident was to prove the sum total of Columbus's slaving activities, though even his admirers, such as the chronicler Bartolomé de las Casas, would regard it as the darkest stain on his entire career. Whether he would have enslaved more Indians or not, given the chance to do so, the practice of selling them in Spain was quickly squelched by order of the queen. No one should be under any illusion as to whether the Spanish sometimes treated the Indians with incredible cruelty. At the same time, this needs to be seen in the light of Indian cruelty toward their own captives, both European and Indian, which as a rule was crueler and more torturous than that inflicted on them by the Spanish. It also needs to be seen in the light of the mixed-race relationships and children that were already being produced within a few years of the Spanish arrival. According to popularly accepted figures, Columbus and the Spanish administrators of the islands are held responsible for the deaths of up to 8 million Indians. This is undoubtedly a wild exaggeration. The idea that Columbus killed millions of people on the island of Hispaniola is an unfortunate legacy of the writings of the aforementioned Friar de las Casas, who saw firsthand the mistreatment of the natives at the hands of Europeans during those first lawless decades. Las Casas' most famous work on the destruction of the Indies was a polemical tract designed to create maximum sympathy for the Indians in Spain. It worked, and his persistence paid off with the passage in 1542 of the New Laws of the Indies for the Good Treatment and Preservation of the Indians, which overhauled uh, the, the encomienda system and led to a gradual stabilization of colonist-Indian mestizo relations. By the end of the 16th century, most forced labor in New Spain had been replaced by wage labor, with African slaves remaining a small minority of unpaid workers in many Latin American countries. Las Casas' sympathy for the Indian plight did not prevent him from being a great admirer of Columbus. He went out of his way to portray Columbus as a protector of the Indians rather than a scourge. This is another inconvenient truth that has been swept under the rug by modern polemical treatments. Las Casas' main target was not Columbus himself, but the Spanish adventurers and ne'er-do-wells who came after him in search of an opportunity to get rich quick. It was Las Casas who suggested that Hispaniola might have had up to 3 million people in 1491, a figure that most serious demographers reject as absurd, while modern activists continue to broadcast it as widely as possible. Furthermore, while it's true that thousands of people died as a result of Spanish maladministration and forced labor, perhaps up to 25,000 over the course of 50 years, the number of indigenous people killed in military engagements or wanton violence probably numbered about two or 3,000. The total number who were enslaved and sent back to Spain likewise appears to have been in the hundreds. Columbus himself was responsible for a tiny fraction of those killed through direct violence and mistreatment. As governor, he proved as likely to kill a European rebel as an indigenous one. The great majority of those who died, easily over 90%, were victims of disease rather than cruelty.
The reason why the real numbers of killed and enslaved were so low is that the Spanish government viewed the inhabitants of Hispaniola and other Caribbean islands as valuable subjects of the crown. Just as Queen Isabella would never send out an army of extermination against one of her own provinces, except in extreme circumstances, so she continually admonished her officials to treat the Caribbean natives with just as much care as possible. Human beings were the greatest source of capital in Isabella's day. Like other feudal lords, Isabella wanted to maximize the population of her territories, not reduce it. In a world recently depopulated by the Black Death, European lords knew that the only way to reap revenue from, from an estate was to have it worked by numerous hands in long-standing agricultural settlements. Columbus's accomplishments as a navigator and explorer are irrefutable and justly catapult him into the first rank of historical figures. For hundreds of years after Columbus, the map-making and geography he spurred acted as anchors for countless scientific achievements. It is no exaggeration to say that the European voyages of discovery remain foundational to all modern science and technology. Columbus was the first to bring New World peoples back into contact with the major civilizations of the Old World, and he is rightly remembered as a brash, colorful architect of modern globalism. He was also very much a man of his time and of his culture. He marveled at the wonders of the New World and had some of the sensibilities of a Renaissance artist. He appreciated the physical form and intelligence of some of the Caribbean Indians he encountered. He had the capacity for religious fanaticism, but for most of his life he was a religious opportunist who counseled moderation. He was greedy, to be sure, but like all good businessmen, he understood the need to play fair. He was willing to sell war captives of slaves, but only in some cases and only if circumstances allowed. His primary motive was the creation of a family dynasty, though he also wished to be remembered as an ocean-going successor to Marco Polo. As an administrator, however, he was disastrous. He was not particularly cruel by the standards of his day, but nor was he good at maintaining order or restraining his adopted Spanish allies from making life intolerable for the natives. In some Columbus was no saint. He was a self-aggrandizing entrepreneur and a bad administrator who allowed anarchy to break out where some other men might have kept order. This ended up causing thousands of deaths and set the stage for more. At the same time, Columbus was an extremely brave and skilled navigator and a visionary who set the stage for modernity by uniting the two halves of planet Earth. The task of governing first contact between the Caribbean and European peoples was never going to be an easy one. And the fact that New World people proved so extremely susceptible to Old World disease could have been predicted by no one. One thing that does no one any good is to exaggerate the numbers of natives who died in the Caribbean, and to exaggerate the level of malice, racism, cruelty, greed, and zealotry borne by the Europeans. On all these counts, the slightest brush with the facts about Columbus and his career shows that the ideas articulated by historian Howard Zinn and his followers are gross misrepresentations of what was in reality a complex and multifaceted historical encounter. Again, those were selections from the book Not Stolen, The Truth About European Colonialism in the New World by Jeff Finn Paul. I cannot recommend that book highly enough, and I hope that what I shared from it will enlighten you about Christopher Columbus, colonialism, and why we should commemorate Columbus Day and not Indigenous Peoples Day. And that's the right take on that issue. Thank you again for joining me here at the intersection of politics and culture. Don't forget to subscribe so you can keep up 
with all the important conversations we're having here. And if you like what you hear, please leave that positive review. Thanks, and be seeing you. The Right Take with Mark Tapson is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Front Page Magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express written consent is prohibited.